Chapter Twelve of Twelve Types. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twelve Types by G. K. Chesterton. The Position of Sir Walter Scott. Walter Scott is a writer who should just now be re-emerging into his own high place in letters, for unquestionably the recent, though now dwindling, schools of severely technical and aesthetic criticism have been unfavorable to him. He was a chaotic and unequal writer, and if there is one thing in which artists have improved since his time, it is in consistency and equality. It would perhaps be unkind to inquire whether the level of the modern man of letters as compared with scott is due to the absence of valleys or the absence of mountains but in any case we have learnt in our day to arrange our literary effects carefully and the only point in which we fall short of scott is in the incidental misfortune that we have nothing particular to arrange it is said that scott is neglected by modern readers if so the matter could be more appropriately described by saying that modern readers are neglected by providence the ground of this neglect, in so far as it exists, must be found, I suppose, in the general sentiment that, like the beard of Polonius, he is too long. Yet it is surely a peculiar thing that in literature alone a house should be despised because it is too large, or a host impugned because he is too generous. If romance be really a pleasure, it is difficult to understand the modern reader's consuming desire to get it over, and if it not be a pleasure, it is difficult to understand his desire to have it at all mere size it seems to me cannot be a fault the fault must lie in some disproportion if some of scott's stories are dull and dilatory it is not because they are giants but because they are hunchbacks or cripples scott was very far indeed from being a perfect writer but i do not think that it can be shown that the large and elaborate plan on which his stories are built was by any means in imperfection he arranged his endless prefaces and his colossal introductions just as an architect plans great gates and long approaches to a really large house he did not share the latter-day desire to get quickly through a story he enjoyed narrative as a sensation he did not wish to swallow a story like a pill that it should do him good afterwards he desired to taste it like a glass of port that it might do him good at the time the reader sits late at his banquets his characters have that air of immortality which belongs to those of dumas and dickens we should not be surprised to meet them in any number of sequels scott in his heart of hearts probably would have liked to write an endless story without either beginning or close walter scott is a great and therefore mysterious man he will never be understood until romance is understood and that will only be when time man and eternity are understood to say that scott had more than any other man than ever lived a sense of the romantic seems in these days a slight and superficial tribute the whole modern theory arises from one fundamental mistake the idea that romance is in some way a plaything with life a figment a conventionality a thing upon the outside no genuine criticism of romance will ever arise until we have grasped the fact that romance lies not upon the outside of life but absolutely in the centre of it the centre of every man's existence is a dream death disease and sanity are merely material accidents like toothache or a twisted ankle that these brutal forces always besiege and 
often capture the citadel does not prove that they are the citadel the boast of the realist applying what the reviewers call his scalpel is that he cuts into the heart of life but he makes a very shallow incision if he only reaches as deep as habits and calamities and sins deeper than all these lies a man's vision of himself as swaggering and sentimental as a penny novelette the literature of candor unearths innumerable weaknesses and elements of lawlessness which is called romance it perceives superficial habits like murder and dipsomania but it does not perceive the deepest of sins the sin of vanity vanity which is the mother of all daydreams and adventures the one sin that is not shared with any boon companion or whispered to any priest in estimating therefore the ground of scott's preeminence in romance we must absolutely rid ourselves of the notion that romance or adventure are merely materialistic things involved in the tangle of a plot or the multiplicity of drawn swords we must remember that it is like tragedy or farce a state of the soul and that for some dark and elemental reason which we can never understand this state of the soul is evoked in us by the sight of certain places or the contemplation of certain human crises by a stream rushing under a heavy and covered wooden bridge or by a man plunging a knife or sword into tough timber in the selection of these situations which catch the spirit of romance as in a net scott has never been equalled or even approached his finest scenes affect us like fragments of a hilarious dream they have the same quality which is often possessed by those nocturnal comedies that of seeming more human than our waking life even while they are less possible sir arthur wardour with his daughter and the old beggar crouching in a cranny of the cliff as night falls and the tide closes around them are actually in the coldest and bitterest of practical situations yet the whole incident has a quality that can only be called boyish it is warm with all the colors of an incredible sunset rob roy trapped in the toll-booth and confronted with bailey nickel jarvey draws no sword leaps from no window affects none of the dazzling external acts upon which contemporary romance depends yet that plain and humorous dialogue is full of the essential philosophy of romance which is in almost equal betting upon man and destiny perhaps the most profoundly thrilling of all scott's situations is that in which the family of colonel mannering are waiting for the carriage which may or may not arrive by night to bring an unknown man into a princely possession yet almost the whole of that thrilling scene consists of a ridiculous conversation about food and flirtation between a frivolous old lawyer and a fashionable girl we can say nothing about what makes these scenes except that the wind bloweth where it listeth and that here the wind blows strong it is in this quality of what may be called spiritual adventurousness that scott stands at so different an elevation to the whole of the contemporary crop of romancers who have followed the leadership of dumas there has indeed been a great and inspiriting revival of romance in our time but it is partly frustrated in almost every case by this rooted conception that romance consists in the vast multiplication of incidents and the violent acceleration of narrative the heroes of mr stanley waveman scarcely ever have their swords out of their hands the deeper presence of romance is far better felt when the sword is at the hip ready for innumerable adventures too terrible to be pictured 
the stanley wayman hero had scarcely time to eat his supper except in the act of leaping from a window or whilst his other hand is employed in lunging with a rapier in scott's heroes on the other hand there is no characteristic so typical or so worthy of honour as their disposition to linger over their meals the conviviality of the clerk of copmanhurst or of mr pleydell and the thoroughly solid things they are described as eating is one of the most perfect of scott's poetic touches in short mr stanley wayman is filled with the conviction that the sole essence of romance is to move with insatiable rapidity from incident to incident in the truer romance of scott there is more of the sentiment of oh still delay thou art so fair more of a certain patriarchal enjoyment of things as they are of the sword by the side and the wine-cup in the hand romance indeed does not consist by any means so much in experiencing adventures as in being ready for them how little the actual boy cares for incidents in comparison to tools and weapons may be tested by the fact that the most popular story of adventure is concerned with a man who lived for years on a desert island with two guns and a sword which he never had to use on any enemy closely connected with this is one of the charges most commonly brought against scott particularly in his own day the charge of a fanciful and monotonous insistence upon the details of armour and costume the critic and the edinburgh review said indignantly that he could tolerate a somewhat detailed description of the apparel of marmion but when it came to an equally detailed account of the apparel of his pages and yeomen the mind could bear it no longer the only thing to be said about that critic is that he had never been a little boy he foolishly imagined that scott valued the plume and dagger of marmion for marmion's sake not being himself romantic he could not understand that scott valued the plume because it was a plume and the dagger because it was a dagger like a child he loved weapons with a manual materialistic love as one loves the softness of fur or the coolness of marble one of the profound philosophical truths which are almost confined to infants is this love of things not for their use or origin but for their own inherent characteristics the child's love of the toughness of wood the wetness of water the magnificent soapiness of soap so it was with scott who had so much of the child in him human beings were perhaps the principal characters in his stories but they were certainly not the only characters a battle-axe was a person of importance a castle had a character and ways of its own a church-bell had a word to say in the matter like a true child he almost ignored the distinction between the animate and the inanimate a two-handed sword might be carried only by a menial in a procession but it was something important and immeasurably fascinating it was a two-handed sword there is one quality which is supreme and continuous in scott which is little appreciated at present one of the values we have really lost in recent fiction is the value of eloquence the modern literary artist is compounded of almost every man except the orator yet shakespeare and scott are certainly alike in this that they could both if literature had failed have earned a living as professional demagogues the feudal heroes in the waverley novels retort upon each other with a passionate dignity haughty and yet singularly human which can hardly be paralleled in political eloquence except in julius caesar with a certain fiery impartiality which stirs the blood scott distributes his noble orations equally among saints and villains 
he may deny a villain every virtue or triumph but he cannot endure to deny him a telling word he will ruin a man but he will not silence him in truth one of scott's most splendid traits is his difficulty or rather incapacity for despising any of his characters he does not scorn the most revolting miscreant as the realist of to-day commonly scorns his own hero though his soul may be in rags every man of scott can speak like a king this quality as i have said is sadly to seek in the fiction of the passing hour the realist would of course repudiate the bare idea of putting a bold and brilliant tongue in every man's head but even where the moment of the story naturally demands eloquence the eloquence seems frozen in the tap take any contemporary work of fiction and turn to the scene where the young socialist denounces the millionaire and then compare the stilted sociological lecture given by that self-sacrificing bore with the surging joy of words in rob roy's declaration of himself or ethelstan's defiance of de bracy that anciency of human passion upon which high words and great phrases are the resplendent foam is just now at a low ebb we have even gone the length of congratulating ourselves because we can see the mud and the monsters at the bottom in politics there is not a single man whose position is due to eloquence in the first degree his place is taken by repartees and rejoinders purely intellectual like those of an omnibus conductor in discussing questions like the farm burning in south africa no critic of the war uses his material as burke or grattan perhaps exaggeratively would have used it the speaker is content with facts and expositions of facts in another age he might have risen and hurled that great song in prose perfect as prose and yet rising in a chant which meg merrilies hurled at elegavon at the rulers of britain ride your ways laird of elegoin ride your ways godfrey bertram this day have ye quenched seven smoking hearths see if the fire in your sin parlour burns the blither for that ye have riven the thack of seven cotter houses look if your ain roof-tree stands the faster for that you may stable your stirks in the shillings of Durne luth see that the hare does not couch on the hearth-stain of elegoan ride your ways godfrey berthram the reason is of course that these men are afraid of bombast and scott was not a man will not reach eloquence if he is afraid of bombast just as a man will not jump a hedge if he is afraid of a ditch as the object of all eloquence is to find the least common denominator of men's souls to fall just within the natural comprehension it cannot obviously have any chance with a literary ambition which aims at falling just outside it it is quite right to invent subtle analyses and detached criticisms but it is unreasonable to expect them to be punctuated with roars of popular applause it is possible to conceive of a mob shouting any central and simple sentiment good or bad but it is impossible to think of a mob shouting at distinction in terms in the matter of eloquence the whole question is one of the immediate effect of greatness such as is produced even by fine bombast it is absurd to call it merely superficial here there is no question of superficiality we might as well call a stone that strikes us between the eyes merely superficial the very word superficial is founded on a fundamental mistake about life the idea that second thoughts are best the superficial impression of the world is by far the deepest what we really feel naturally and casually about the look of skies and trees and the face of friends 
that and that alone will almost certainly remain our vital philosophy to our dying day scott's bombast therefore will always be stirring to anyone who approaches it as he should approach all literature as a little child we could easily excuse the contemporary critic for not admiring melodramas and adventure stories and punch and judy if he would admit that it was a slight deficiency in his artistic sensibilities beyond all question it marks a lack of literary instinct to be unable to simplify one's mind at the first signal of the advance of romance you do me wrong said brian de bois gilbert to rebecca many a law many a commandment have i broken but my word never die cries balfour of burley to the villain in old mortality die hoping nothing believing nothing and fearing nothing replies the other this is the old and honourable fine art of bragging as it was practised by the great worthies of antiquity the man who cannot appreciate it goes along with the man who cannot appreciate beef or claret or a game with children or a brass band they are afraid of making fools of themselves and are unaware that the transformation has already been triumphantly effected scott is separated then from much of the later conception of fiction by this quality of eloquence the whole of the best and finest work of the modern novelist such as the work of mr henry james is primarily concerned with that delicate and fascinating speech which burrows deeper and deeper like a mole but we have wholly forgotten that speech which mounts higher and higher like a wave and falls in a crashing peroration perhaps the most thoroughly brilliant typical man of this decade is mr bernard shaw in his admirable play of candida it is clearly a part of the character of the socialist clergyman that he should be eloquent but he is not eloquent because the whole j b s condition of mind renders impossible that poetic simplicity which eloquence requires scott takes his heroes and villains seriously which is after all the way that heroes and villains take themselves especially villains it is the custom to call these old romantic poses artificial but the word artificial is the last and silliest evasion of criticism there was never anything in the world that was really artificial it had some motive or ideal behind it and generally a much better one than we think of the faults of scott as an artist it is not very necessary to speak for faults are generally and easily pointed out while there is yet no adequate valuation of the varieties and contrasts of virtue we have compiled the complete botanical classification of the weeds in the poetical garden but then the flowers still flourish neglected and nameless it is true for example that scott had an incomparably stiff and pedantic way of dealing with his heroines he made a lively girl of eighteen refuse an offer in the language of dr johnson to him as to most men of his time woman was not an individual but an institution a toast that was drunk some time after that of church and king but it is far better to consider the difference rather as a special merit in that he stood for all those clean and bracing shocks of incident which are untouched by passion or weakness for a certain breezy bachelorhood which is almost essential to the literature of adventure with all his faults and all his triumphs he stands for the great mass of natural manliness which must be absorbed into art unless art is to be a mere luxury and freak an appreciation of scott might be made almost a test of decadence if ever we lose touch with this one most reckless and defective writer 
it will be a proof to us that we have erected round ourselves a false cosmos a world of lying and horrible perfection leaving outside of it walter scott and that strange old world which is as confused and as indefensible and as inspiring and as healthy as he is End of chapter 12 End of 12 Types by G. K. Chesterton